Okay, well this morning as we shift gears, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2 as we continue on with our Mark It Up series. So we're marking up Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, seeking to understand the scriptures for ourselves and then apply them to our lives. This morning we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As I was kind of mulling through today's message last week, I kept coming back to this question. It seems to me that some of us are kind of worried, kind of concerned, maybe even fearful that God loves some people more than he loves other people. And maybe, does God love other people more than he loves me? Have you ever struggled with that question? I, I got to admit that I've struggled with that question. And... Um, even though I wasn't raised in the church, I think I struggle with that question in certain ways from a young age, not so much because of my belief about God, but ironically, but because of my belief in, in Santa Claus. And Santa Claus has this song that used to frighten me. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's... He's coming to town. And he knows who's naughty. And sometimes I had this fear about Santa Claus coming to town because I thought about my list. And what if the naughty stuff on my list overwhelmed the nice stuff on my list? Then maybe I wouldn't be one of his favorites and he'd just leave me a lump of coal. Sadly, I think many people apply that perverted logic to God. And they think that perhaps God plays favorites and that maybe they are on his nasty list. Other people, seems to go really well for them, but maybe I'm on God's naughty list and I'm not his favorite. Have you ever struggled with this? I had a friend who conceptualized this really well for me a number of years ago. He was a strong Christian. He loved the Lord. Um, and he said to me one day, Adrian, I believe in God. I trust in Jesus. I think he answers prayers, just not mine. I've known others who have said to me, my family has been pummeled again and again. Across the years, across the decades, we cannot catch a break. Is God out to get us? Has he favored other families over our family? And there are still others who say, sometimes they've even learned it from the church, that there are certain people that God favors. And by implication, there are other groups of people that maybe he does not favor. Keep all of that in mind as we read Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The Apostle Paul has been talking about his biography and how he's been equipped to be a minister of the gospel and now he's being challenged by this church in Galatia but he had 14 years of training in order to be equipped by God to become this church planter and a writer of about half of the New Testament. So we launch off there at verse 1 of chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I, the Apostle Paul, went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus also along with me. I went in response to a revelation and 
meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be, might be preserved for you. As for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Okay, there's some kind of shocking language in this passage, isn't there? Like, this isn't the normal kind of conversational language that we keep in our modern conversations. But what's the issue here that Paul is getting at? The issue is fundamentally this. Is that there's this group of people in this church in Galatia who says, there are Jews that are ranked up here before God, and there are Gentiles who are ranked down here before God. There are Jews that are fully accepted by God, and there are Gentiles that are not quite fully accepted by God. And in the early church, this was a very real debate that they had to deal with. And it went all the way to the level of asking, do non-Jewish male converts, adult converts to Christianity, have to be circumcised first before they can be a part of the church? Yikes. I'm not exactly sure how to make this one Sunday morning polite. But the Bible goes there in many New Testament letters again and again because this was a very real debate and a very real issue within the early church that had to be dealt with. And unless you understand this, you're going to see these passages in the New Testament as extremely random. You have to understand a bit of the background, and I give thanks to God that we have a learning church that wants to understand the background of what's been going on here in this debate that would then lead us to understand the scriptures more. So, the custom within the Jewish people was this. All males, all infant-born males, would be circumcised on the eighth day as a marker that they were part culturally, religiously, and ethnically with the Jewish community. It was an external marker that they were a part of the Jewish community. And the Jews had these transcendent moral markers, and they also had these time-based, cultural, non-transcendent, time-based markers as well. The transcendent markers were things like the Ten Commandments, 
By transcendent, I mean they're for all people at all times, not just for the Jews. That make sense? Ten Commandments, monotheistic worship of one God, not the polytheistic worship of many gods that was around, all around them at the time. But there's also these time-based cultural laws the Jews would follow, which included things like circumcision and the dietary laws of kosher, forbidding pork and shellfish and the like, and various laws related to Sabbath restrictions, what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath day, and various laws about who you would eat with and who was considered clean and who was considered dirty. And Jesus came and he said, I fulfilled all of those cultural laws that marked the Jewish people for temporary purposes back when they were developing. Jesus came and he said, I fulfilled all of those. I don't believe Jesus fulfilled the moral laws. We'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 3. But again, this is a very real debate that the early churches were uh, going through as all of a sudden here in about A.D. 47 when Paul is writing, here you have about 15 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and for the first time, Gentiles are coming into the church in large number. Up until this time, 47, 48 A.D., the church was almost exclusively Jews. There are a few small number of Gentiles, like the author Luke and Titus. They were Gentiles. But otherwise, it's mostly Jews. And about 47 and 48, they started to change these great missionary enterprises though, that were happening. And so they start to deal with, for the very first time, what do we do with all these cultural Jewish laws that we've all been practicing as Jews now that all these Gentiles are coming in? It became such a big deal that they even convened a church council to decide together what they should say to the Gentiles who are now becoming part of the church. And Acts chapter 15 speaks on that. They said this. After they got together, the various pillars of the church, the apostles, they said, we should not make it more difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Can I get an amen? Come on. Like, we should not make it more difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. That is such good news. Because what they're deciding together at those church councils is, do you have to follow all of those cultural laws that I just talked about and many, many more? And what they decided was, it's hard enough to take yourself off the throne of your life and humbly say, Jesus, I trust in you. I give myself completely to you. That's hard enough. It's hard enough to say, I'm going to live out the two great commandments of God. To love God with all I got, my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. And to love others as myself and to treat others well. Everyone always, no matter where I go, to treat people with love. That's hard enough, isn't it? It's hard enough to humbly say, I will pick up my cross and I will follow you, Lord, wherever you would take me. It's hard enough to humbly say, I want to be a person of integrity all the time. 100% of the time. And so, let's not make it any more difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. And yet, as Paul is writing this letter, that's exactly what he is dealing with. With these false leaders in the church. Look at verse 4. This matter of circumcision, again, 
arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Jesus Christ and to make us slaves. So these false teachers are coming in and trying to make uh, Christians who are new converts from Gentile nations into slaves of the old Jewish laws uh, that I just referred to. And if you can imagine, they're like spying on people. Can you imagine this? Like spying over people to say, are, are they doing it good enough? Are they good enough Christians? You know, like they seem a little bit too happy. They seem a little bit too free. They seem to love the grace of God a little bit too much. Have you ever known someone like that? It, like really, really religious people sometimes do that. They get suspicious of really happy, joy-filled Christians. Let's not be like that. That's really weird. Jesus fulfilled all of that. A, a Gentile is just, this is all a Gentile is. It's a word that's used all the time in the Bible, but, but it's not used much in our contemporary parlance. But, but a Gentile, it comes from the Greek word ethnos. The Greek word is ethnos. The English word is Gentile. From what would we get the English out of ethnos? Ethnos, ethnicity I just heard. From ethnos, the Greek word to ethnicity. And so what they are deciding here together is they're going through all these questions about circumcision and dietary laws and all the rest is those outside of the church have come in and they're saying you need to become more Jewish but because you can't become totally Jewish we'll just start with circumcision and we'll go from there to all these dietary laws. And what Paul is saying is no, all the Gentiles of the world, they come in just as they are. Let's not make it more difficult for them. You have one group of people that's Hebrew blood that's one ethnicity, and then you have a whole bunch of other ethnicities. And hear me clearly now, Kenyans, Nigerians, Arabians, Colombians, Swedes, Germans, Americans, Mexicans, we're all Gentiles, okay? Like, unless you're a Jew, you're a Gentile. You're a Gentile. And so Paul is saying, you can come to God right the way you are, even as the false believers are saying, no, they need to become Jewish first. Some are favored, the Jews. And some, like all of us, almost all of us, are not, the Gentiles. That's not, I believe, what the Bible says. That's what they were saying. But I think even with the choosing of the Jews in the Old Testament, well, what's going on there is God elects the Jews for a service for a time. It's not electing the Jews for eternal salvation, as many people have said. He elects the Jews as uh, servants to be representatives of what he wants done in the world. That he begins with a family, and it spreads out to a nation. And that nation is made to be a blessing to other nations all around it. And it would be a different kind of people because they become a Ten Commandments type people who are all of a sudden becoming lighthouses to the world all around them, that other people would see the Jews and they say, I want what they have when they live before a transcendent, authoritative God who gives an objective morality that shows us how to live. They are a lighthouse and I want what they have. That's what he elected Israel to. But it wasn't that he favored Israel over the Gentiles. It's that he wants to use Israel to become a lighthouse to all others, just like he wants to use us, the church, to become a lighthouse to all others. I mean, can you think, even in the Old Testament, of Gentiles who became examples by their faith to Jews? Just to illustrate the point. Any names come to mind? 
in the Old Testament? Rahab, I heard. Okay, so think of Rahab. Rahab is a Jerichoite. You know where Jericho is? It's in Palestine. Okay? And she's a prostitute. And God uses this Jerichoite, who's a prostitute, a Gentile, to pave the path for the people to enter in the promised land. How about Ruth? Ruth lived as a Moabite. Did Moabites and Jews like each other? No, they couldn't stand each other. And yet at this time in their history, it's called the Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They all just did what they wanted to do. And God used a Moabite to give them an example of faithfulness and love. As an example to the Jews, he gives this Moabite woman, so much so that she gets a book named after her in the Bible. Or how about Job? Job is a Gentile, and Job is called the most righteous person in all of the earth. Indeed, if you read the genealogies of Jesus very carefully, in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, you know those little sections that we like, like to kind of skip over, those genealogies? If you were to actually go through those boring sections and read them carefully, you would see that there are a number of Gentiles listed in the genealogy of Jesus such that God brings about a mixed blood, mixed race, mixed ethnicity savior for the world. Does God play favorites? Mm. Read verse 6 out loud with me. Join me here. As for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me because God does not show I would underline in my Bible, if I were you, God does not show favorites. I would highlight in chartreuse the word not. God just doesn't show favorites. He wants the entire world. He wants you and me and every person that we meet from every different tribe and tongue and nation from all over the world. It goes on here in verse 9 to give this explanation. James, who is James? James is the brother of Jesus. So I might just write in my Bible, that's the brother of Jesus. I better listen to him. Cephas, who's Cephas? Cephas is Peter. Peter is the first disciple. I mean, he's the one that's entrusted with building the church in Jerusalem. Uh, God calls him the rock. Jesus calls him the rock on which he'll build the church. Then John, who's John? John is the disciple that Jesus loved. He was like his closest friend. He wrote the book of John and the book of Revelation and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars of the church, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles, that's one, and they should go to the circumcised. So what they agreed is, we're different kinds of people. We can probably reach different kinds of people. There's going to be different targets, but we're both going after the same gospel of Jesus Christ. And these are the pillars that are holding up the church, and they say, we go to the Jews, and you go to the nations all around us. Here's the big idea that you've got to take home with you today. God does not show favoritism towards certain people, but God does favor a heart for mission. He doesn't favor certain people, but he favors a heart that says, yes, God, would you please use me as I am? No, we need to believe this. We need to shout this out loud. We need to teach this. We need to live this. There's no people that are specifically favored by God over any other person. 
man, I, I want to give my life to, to this cause of, of preaching this message that God shows no favorites. He's trying to build one multi-ethnic people of all different kinds of people. And he loves whites and blacks and Hispanics and Asians. And he loves working class people. And he loves intellectuals and practicals and people who work with their hands. Because we need people to work with their hands to make up for people like me who can't work very well with their hands. Like it takes all different kinds of gifts together to make the body of Christ. And as we're all aiming at the same target, but going in different directions based on the gifts and the abilities that God gave us, then the church is built up. And all that is required is this. Do you have a heart for mission? That's all that's required. Do you have a heart for mission? Like, here's the person that God can't use. Eh. Decent sermon, Adrian. Eh. I'll come back next week, maybe. Maybe you'll get a better one next week. I'll listen to Rick Warren this afternoon. <laughs> consume, consume, consume. Like, God won't use that. God doesn't use a consumeristic attitude. God uses people that say, use me. Here I am, I stand, and you can use me for whatever you want to do, God. I will follow you wherever you want me to go, God. That's the heart that God will use to build up his kingdom. He uses people who say, oh, there's a need in children's ministry? God, use me. Oh, how I'd love to serve kids. How I would love to go reach out to those who perhaps just came to church for the first time here on Sunday morning. Oh, there's a need in my neighborhood. So someone doesn't know Christ and I have an opportunity to share Christ with them. God, use me. Oh, there's a need in my workplace. Someone's really, really hurting. God, use me. I will spend my energy till the day I die. I will spend my time. I will spend my money till the day I die for going after what actually matters in this world rather than just more consumeristic stuff for me. And this is how God would build up his church. Favoring no one, but using those who have a heart for what he wants done in the world, which is people, to connect with people, to point people to his love. So interesting, the last thing though that he states here at the end of this passage is kind of Surprising. It says, reach out to those who are in need as you're reaching out, as you're going on mission. All they asked, all these pillars of the church asked, is that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing I had been eager to do. Wow, eager. Continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been so eager to do. Why is it that he tacks that on? At the end of a passage about circumcision and favoritism, he says, remember the poor, and he says, this is the very thing that I've been so eager to do. I think he adds this on because no matter the century, no matter the race, no matter the area of our world, people have a tendency not to remember the poor. People have a tendency to ignore the poor. You see, the Greco-Roman world was famous for ignoring the poor. The Greeks trampled on the poor. The Romans trampled on the poor. So many nations around earth trample on the poor. America has been known in the past as a lighthouse that actually cares for the poor. 
The Bible is so very deeply concerned about people on the margins that it lists four different groups, oftentimes under the panoply, under the umbrella of poor. These four different groups that the Bible lists so frequently are these. Widows, orphans, otherwise called the fatherless, immigrants, and the poor. And oftentimes the Bible just refers to the poor to refer to, to, refer to all four of those different groups because in, the, in Bible times, those four groups were always poor. Do you know how often the Bible talks about God's concern for those four groups? 2,000 times. 2,000 times. It is not secondary to God. Caring for those in the margins is not what liberal churches do. Caring for people on the margins is what Bible churches do. Caring for people on the margins is what Bible churches do. Friends, we have to fight a cultural tide that has developed. I don't know when it began, five, ten years, I don't care when it began, but a cultural tide has developed in which Americans have begun to do what other nations have been doing for generations, and that's blaming the poor rather than caring for the poor. And we need to get back to this place that we say with the Apostle Paul, I'm eager care for those who are hurting. Like, why is it that we do this, that we would blame people who are struggling? They say, well, they deserve it. Man, you ever ask yourself the question, what if I got what I deserve? I ask myself that question a lot. If I got what I deserve, God has treated me far better than I deserve. And God doesn't just talk about this. He does this. My favorite verse is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And Jesus lives this out. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich unto God. Through his poverty we become rich unto God because of his fabulous mercy, because of his fabulous grace, we are brought into the family of God. Jesus came, he downsized from the glory of heaven to the dirt of earth. He took on poverty as he was born into a peasant family, and then he lived as an itinerant preacher and shepherd of people, oftentimes homeless. He took on poverty so that you and I would become rich to God. And so any church worth its weight in salt has to answer the question, how do you care for those on the margins? And when the church combines what Paul begins talking about in this passage, preach the gospel with passion, with a compassion toward those who are hurting. That, my friends, is when the church's message gains teeth. That is when the church becomes a lighthouse to a dark and dying world. I had a friend who told me a story last week. It's so powerful. I had to share it with you. He said there's a guy who regularly walks by their house, and when he comes by, my friend said, I tend to keep him at a distance, and he just looks different than me, and he smells different than me, and his teeth are messed up, and he wears old clothes, and he's quite obviously poor. And he said, I suppose at the end of the day, I was making a judgment on him based on how he looks. Well, a few days ago, this man came by this friend's house once again, and he stopped, and he was looking in their driveway. 
And then he took a few steps and he looked in their open garage and he saw a number of bikes. And he took a few more steps and he knocked on their door and he said, I don't have any transportation, can I have one of your bikes? And this friend and his wife talked about it. They processed it through and they said to the man, not this time, it's nice talking to you. Thank you for the pleasant conversation that they had, but we're not gonna do that right now. My friend said, the image I had in mind was so different than the reality when I actually met him. I had a bunch of assumptions about him and basically that he is not my kind of people. Seeing him and making a judgment on him from afar and then getting to know him a bit and getting a complete 180 degree turn on the situation, it was a heart check for me. Well, he and his wife continued to talk about it and they remembered that no one less than Jesus said things like, if any of you has two coats and you see to someone who has zero coats, give to that one who has no coats. And so they talked about it some more and they're giving him his bike. This is just normal for Christians. It's just normal operating procedure for Christians to live with an open hand toward mission. Say, God, use me wherever you will. I could care less about more accumulation for me. This is why the church does things like storehouse. This is why the church does men in action for widows and single parents, both inside the church and outside the church. This is why the church takes a grace offering every quarter to care for the needs of those who are struggling financially, both inside the church and outside the church. Again, any church that's worth its weight and salt must answer the question, how are you caring for those in the margins? And you can get involved with any of those. But if you're struggling with favoritism against the poor or against any other person for that matter, there is nothing more powerful that you can do than what my friend did. It's getting to know someone who is different and sitting and listening to him and having your perspective changed. Because as we get to know those who are different, as we get to know those who are on the margins, as we get to know those even who are poor, we realize Jesus has his arms wide open to me. He showed no favoritism to me. And Jesus would have his arms wide open to them as well. And I'm a member of Jesus' body. So perhaps now is the time for me to have my arms wide open even to him. So Father, we give ourselves to you. Right now we give ourselves to you. confess to you that as I preach this message, it's convicting to me. And I thank you for Paul's words, inspired as they were by the Holy Spirit. Father, there might be some in this room who feel a similar level of conviction that they favored some people over others, and we would just confess that to you right now. We give it to you, and we ask that you forgive us of that. And you'd give us a heart that reflects more the kindness of God rather than the unkindness of this world. We invite you to change us from the inside out. And Father, there are others in this room who came into church today saying, uh, God doesn't listen to me. God doesn't answer my prayers. God has something against my family. And I pray that you'd give them courage right now to stand up and sing of the reckless love of God. 
And as they sing, God, perhaps you would give them the wisdom to look up at the cross. And remember, that's how far Jesus came for each and every one of us in this room. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your love is reckless for us, that you don't show favoritism toward one people over another people. But you want us all. Perhaps even this morning you're standing in the door knocking at someone's soul. And you, Lord Jesus, would just say, would you let me in? Would you let me in? And if we say yes to God, he'll say yes to us because he loves us that much. Father, wherever we are right now, we give ourselves to you. And we ask that you would have your way in us. Through Christ we pray. Amen.